The Women in Agile podcast series amplifies the voices of outstanding women in the Agile community. We are dedicated to sharing the wisdom and inspiration our community has to offer by telling our stories, being thought leaders, and having open conversations with our allies. This series is brought to you in partnership from the Women in Agile organization and Accenture Solutions IQ. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Women in Agile podcast series. I'm your host, Leslie Morse, and today we're chatting with Sarah Harper. Sarah is a true Agile convert that likes to study both the psychology and metrics behind Agile. She works and lives in the Kansas City area where she focuses on healthcare IT. Sarah enjoys spending time reading, quilting, and spending time with her family and friends. Sarah, as well as I learned, Sarah is also a fellow uh, marching band alumni. Yeah. Uh, we, was, we were chatting this morning, uh, getting prepped for today. So I think that's very exciting too, Sarah. Thanks for being with me. Sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I think um, I found your name sort of scrolling through the Agile 2019 um, uh, speaker list. And then I think we were chatting on Twitter and I was like, I want to talk to her. I think she's going to have a really cool story. And I think the title of your session, Black Holes and Revelations, was also really intriguing. Like, are we talking about space? Are we talking about agile? Are we talking about teams? <laughs> There's yeah. so many places we could go in our discussion today. Right. Let's start with the talk itself, though. So what's really, if you had to summarize the essence of it, what was Black Holes and Revelations all about? So the talk is really centered around the psychology of team behavior and how it can help form what I call Black Holes. Uh, in the team process. And so the talk is really centered on focusing on the psychology behind the behaviors that form the black hole and then how to kind of spot it with your Kanban or scrum board and then escape from the black hole with some techniques. And how would you, how would you know the black hole even exists? Uh, So that was a really interesting uh, concept in that because you can't see black holes. Right. Uh, space. And I actually uh, relate it to the spatial black hole and, and say that you can't really see it. You don't know that they're there uh, until you start to see the effects of the black hole. Right. Because it really sucks everything in and it sucks it, everything yeah. in. So my talk talks about a status that you have that just work seems to go into but never leaves. And so you just start to see it suck work in and it doesn't really come out. And then you don't really see anything happening inside there. You can't observe. Time seems to stand still inside that status. Work doesn't get done. So it's really looking at the effects of the black hole to kind of figure out, oh, it's right there. That's where it's happening. And so it, that there's more, so much more nuance to calling it a black hole than just calling it like a bottleneck. Right. Because I feel like if it's a bottleneck, you know that things slow down here and the pipeline for things happening is narrow. Um, so it was that part of your reasoning for kind of labeling it as this kind of idea of a black hole? A little bit because a bottleneck. Yeah, you're right. You do see stuff escape eventually, right? You know, stuff gets through, it just slows down. Um, And a lot of times we can plan for that, right? That's why we add buffers and and cues, right? And to work for those black holes were really, it's just work gets sucked in and maybe something escapes, but really it's just, it's not that it's just a bottleneck where it eventually will get out, but that, as the work goes in, you don't seem to be able to get any updates on it. Like you really just can't see that work is even happening inside of there. So it's, it's a lot about the mystery because usually a bottleneck, we know what's happening. We, we know why. 
Right. But the, the black hole is that it just, I'm not, I don't have any data on it. I don't know what's happening. Yeah. And so then once you do figure out like, because I'm sure everybody's sort of thinking of these ideas of, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That happens with us here. Right. Um, right. And so that you're starting to be like, oh, yeah. So relating to the idea, but then, right, just because you know about it, doing something about it's totally different. Right. Yeah. So what do you for, do? Uh, so for to get out of them, it's really interesting. The Some of the techniques that you can actually use to get out are also the ones that can get you in which is very interesting uh, when you when you put it on paper. Uh, but some of the things I like to do, uh, so the first is, step is you have to set your Kanban board up to see them. Yeah, um, and, that's, and that's a good point because you have been using some words that feel very Kanban versus, say, Scrum, even though you could be using Kanban and Scrum together within the confines of a sprint and all of that. Right. So, Yeah, I just kind of generally term it a Kanban board at this point in my life. But it works for either whatever methodology you choose. Mm -hmm. um, but the first problem is that you have to figure out where they are. Because uh, that's, that's, again, the key is that you really can't see them. You can just see the effects. Uh, and what I found is that most tools or even a physical board that you set up, if you set up kind of standard boards that come from tools or a physical board, it doesn't really help you spot them. Um, and so I, the talk goes through the seven gestalt principles of visual design. And we talk about how you need to design your Kanban board to provide visibility to the black hole. Uh, and so we, we go through that. So finding them is the first step because uh, you can't fix them if you can't find them. Yeah. So talk about that. But then how do you solve them? Well, it kind of depends on the black hole and the team. But in, in general, the first step is you have to have a conversation with your team that says, hey, we have a black hole and we need to go fix it. So just having that upfront conversation, the right kind of truth telling about maybe it's, it's a certain area that we need to improve on. Um, another technique that can be used uh, is a Q-bust, which is what I I'll call Q-bust, but it's basically, uh, this can work if you solve it, but if you use it as a temporary measure, it won't work. But you get everybody in a room together for a day or half a day or however long, and you work the issues that are in the black hole. All as a group, you kind of swarm to the, to the problem and get them out of the black hole. Now, you can do that and not solve the black hole and you'll end up in that same place. You it's know, kind of like treating the months. symptoms but not the root cause. Exactly, exactly. So you can use that swarming technique to get the, the queue cleaned, right? But then you actually have to solve the root cause of how did the, the queue get that bad in the first place? So um, that's, that's one of those that can be a symptom and a, um, a solution in that if you're doing Q-bus all the time, but you're not actually solving the Q problem, they're not helping you. You're part of the problem. And is seeing uh, stuff queue up one of the way, ways you can help realize a black hole might be happening? It's one of them. It doesn't okay. have to be because, you know, if you have a, um, a board that has a queue that's in front of a bottleneck because you know it's there, it's okay. That's what we've built it for. Uh, but if it gets to be too big, then maybe there is a different problem to look at. But cues are not necessarily a bad thing. No, it can be if they get too large. Right, and it's, it's, it's all about the the management of it. Right, and um, but the, the, I think the important thing, and while you haven't said the the phrase explicitly yet, is this is visualizing the work. Yes, right is sounds like a really just important piece, no matter what of playing in this entire space. Yes. I think that that's actually one of the things I love about 
the agile and lean techniques is visualizing the work and the process and the flow is a really big piece. Like, I, I don't know how you can be successful if you don't. Uh, and I, I still, I love physical scrum boards and Kanban boards. Um, I, there's double work. And when I, I have one right now with my teams and I still, I have to do the double work and the reconciliation and I don't really like it, but I love the physical scrum board. So I deal. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to us more about, you talked about there were seven steps. Um, can, can you just, just kind of principles? Yes. Right. That's what yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, can, just run through those for us. Um, okay. So the first one is figure ground, which is basically when you look at an image, our brains try to figure out which is the figure, the thing that we're supposed to focus on and which is the background. Uh, and so our eyes, and I have a, on the slide, I have a picture of a, a black and white picture of what looks like either a vase or two people talking to mm -hmm. each other. Uh, it's a very common image. So, um, you know, it's whether, whether you see that one first and what I do is I actually change the slide so that the background is black. My standard background is black, but then I flip it over to the white and say, what do you see now? Um, because that's the perception difference. So the background and what you're trying to focus on is very important. The second uh, principle is called common region, which is where things are grouped together uh, logically. And most Kanban boards actually do an okay job of this on a digital board because there are lines mm -hmm. between statuses. Does that make sense? But on a physical board, if you have one and you don't necessarily have either like tape or string separating your statuses and you have people that don't put their post-it notes or index cards like right in the column that it's supposed to be, that can get confusing. So uh, I always say, if you have a physical board, put tape up or, or string or, or something to really separate out the sections because it just, it saves a question. I don't have to ask, which status is this item in, right? It's very clear. The third item is similarity, which is basically that things that look alike are perceived to have the same function or, or the same thing. Uh, so again, I use the index cards on the board to kind of show that if all of our index cards are the same color, we assume they're all the same, you know, priority or, you know, type of thing. But if you change the colors of things that are maybe blocked or escalated or a different story type, you know, that all of a sudden they're different and I can single them out if I need to. It's another way to visualize even another better. <laughs> right. Transparent, transparent, transparent. <laughs> yes. Um, proximity is the fourth principle, which is that things that are grouped together uh, appear to be related to each other. So again, um, proximity overrides similarity. So in the case where you have like four dots next to each other and one of them is a different color, but then you have four other dots grouped somewhere else, even though the one dot might be a different color in that first group, because they're grouped together, they're perceived to be more alike than different. Correct. Uh, so again, so proximity matters. And then the fifth item is continuity. So the fifth principle says our eyes follow the, the most pleasant line. So if, it, if we're reading on a straight line, we like to follow that straight line. If we're reading on a line that's curved, we'll follow a curved line. And in the, the image on my slide, the lines change color halfway through. So even though the line color changes and my black line that starts straight then curves off, my eye likes to follow the straight line, even though it changed color or the curved right. line. Yep. And so at that point, uh, the Kanban board on my slides actually take a status that is a black hole for me, which is blocked. 
turns it into a swim lane so that I'm honoring proximity and continuity as part of my, my gestalt principles. So I know the things that are blocked, I know where they're blocked and they're all in one twin lane. So I can see them all really easily. Well, and I think that's a really important nuance there. Cause we often talked about like, Oh, that thing's blocked. And right. maybe in our standups, we'll talk about why it's blocked, but you use an interesting word. Speaking of proximity, where mm-hmm. it's blocked. Yes. And that's got to be really telling for teams to, to be able to get that specific. Right. I think that we don't do enough analysis on how things get blocked, when they get blocked, how long they're blocked to really that we should be pulling more of that into our process improvement. Yeah. When it's, I think we get so um, conditioned sometimes to, yep, that thing just gets blocked there. And that's just always the way it's been. And it might've been things always got stuck there before we even started our agile transformation journey. And so why would I expect that to be different? And you just sort of accept it as status quo. Yeah. You just hit on this, one of the psychological behaviors of uh, learned helplessness that teams (laughs) have, that it's the, it's always been this way. It's always blocked. It always gets blocked. So the team just assumes well, that thing will always be blocked. So there's no effort to not get it to be blocked, Yeah, uh, which is one of the psychological behaviors that helps form a black hole. Okay, before we get to the psychological behaviors, though, I think we've got the yes. seventh principle. Yes, yep, two more. So the, okay. the sixth one is a focal point, which is basically how our eyes are drawn, the tension uh, of things to our eyes. And so the idea is that if you want something to stand out, you need to make it stand out. So adding a post-it note or a flyer to like a physical board, or in some cases like Jira, you can flag an item and it actually changes the card color on the board. So just draw your your eye to the thing that needs attention. Mm -hmm. Um, You do have to be careful though with color, because if you uh, have colors all over the place, you diminish the value of the different colors. Yes, Um, as well as there might be colorblind people on your team. Exactly. Another good point. (laughs) Shapes are always useful. (laughs) Shapes are useful. Yes. Have multiple ways to indicate that something's a problem. Yes. Um, The last principle is closure, which is an interesting one that I never actually found a good way on a Kanban board that this, that this makes sense. But closure is basically the human ability to turn things into things that are random into uh, things that we recognize. So for example, if you ever laid on your back on the, uh, on the grass and looked up at the sky and looked at clouds and said, oh, that's shaped like an elephant or that's a palm tree, that's closure. So the clouds are random. They are yep. shapes. You know, nothing happens. You're just but our always eyes, seeking patterns. We are always seeking patterns. And so um, I don't have like a specific example of closure, but I do think that if we were to take a step back and we could like rewind the Kanban board over weeks and go see it go through quicker, um, kind of like a time lapse, we probably start to see some patterns inside of the way the team works. But because we're, we're stamping it every day, we probably don't see it as well as if we could time lapse it. Yeah, but there's also listening to you talk about this and this, you know, the idea of the black hole, we think about black holes can close. Yes. So to some extent, right, visualizing the work in the different ways and doing this triage and analysis, we could bring that to closure and you actually could. eliminate the black hole. True. Um, True. Which then we're not losing all that energy and all of that time suck. It's, yes. it's not always time, but energy suck into whatever Definitely that thing energy is. energy suck. Yes. Yeah. 
So if those are the seven principles, right, you started alluding to the idea around so much of this deals with sort of the psychological patterns and the way that we as humans think when we're working in teams. Right. And is that what really attracted you to this idea? It did. So I, in my former job, I taught our fundamental agile class uh, amongst many of them, but I've taught this agile fundamentals class so many times. Um, and one of the things that we, that we do is we send people to their teens for, you know, six, eight, nine months. And we tell them, go learn the tribal knowledge first, then come take a formal education class because you, it's going to, you're going to get more out of it. And so what yeah. I started picking up on as I was talking to, to, uh, you know, people that were coming to class, they were asking good questions, but they started, and I don't know if this was unique to, to the company I was in, but we had created this uh, status called blocked on our, on our JIRA workflow at the time, because we needed a way to say something's blocked. You know, we yep. can't move forward on it until we get it on or cleared off. So great. So we made this block status, but what happened was um, people started easily throwing stuff into that status. It's and like so an excuse. We, it's an excuse, right? And, yep. you know, stuff that happens. And so I started to, um, you know, as I talked to people and they were asking questions about that, well, we just, you know, move it to blocked or how do we show these things? I started referring to them as a black hole um, because I was like, you know, we just move them over there and they just disappear and we don't care anymore. Uh, and I started to really look at why, why have we allowed that to happen? I mean, process-wise, it's there. So we, we're, our process allows it. But what about our brains or, you know, team dynamics? And how do we, how did we say that this was okay? So that's how I started, started looking at it. Um, and I found these psychological behaviors and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what happens. Um, I'm not a psychology major or anything like that, but I, you know, I had to have someone help me find the right search terms that got me on the right place. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it started with, uh, looking at the psychology behind the behaviors that people do, uh, to get into these holes. And so what sort of what were some of the key things you learned when you started doing that research and found, I love how you phrased it. I had to find the right search terms because half yes. that's half the battle, right? Figuring the out battle. the right keywords. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I, I luckily I have a really good friend who is a psychology major and a, a licensed social worker. So anytime I need the, the psychological term of something that's happening, I go to him and, and I say, this is what I'm trying to, to look at. He gives me the right word to go look Perfect. for it. Um, so the first thing that I really learned was something called learned helplessness, um, which is basically that we've conditioned our teams or ourselves to, um, to basically be okay with an outcome that we feel we have no, no control over. Uh, so the example that I have in my slides is a horse that is tied up to a plastic chair. Um, and that the horse has learned that whenever he's tied to something, he can't go anywhere. Go anywhere. I mean, yeah. It's, it's a, you know, 600 pound horse that can drag this, this five pound chair, you know, down the road for miles, but because he's tied, he said, Oh, this is the way it always is. So I'm I wish I had more here. horses in my life that would have actually learned that. Cause I've worked really? with some that never figured that part out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I thought the picture was an excellent example, it's, it's a you perfect know, example, <laughs> visualization of that. Yes. 
Um, the second thing that I learned about was something called locus of control. And mm-hmm. that concept is the, um, the extent to which a person feels that they have control over their life versus outside forces. And so uh, in the talk, I actually use an example because I used to do dog agility with some of my dogs. And I have a, an image of a dog that's going through the weave poles and he kind of bumps his head on the last weave pole uh, <laughs> as he's trying to come out. And, and I used to talk about it in that I used to do dog agility with my dogs and we really struggled with weave poles. And when I really reflected back on it, I could have easily said, well, weave poles are hard. My dog doesn't like to do weave poles. The judges put them in weird places on the a course. But really, if I really look at it, I hate to teach weave poles to my dog. I don't find them fun. And so it's totally, I have total control over whether my dog wants to learn weave poles or not. I just don't like it myself. Um, so we talk about that, like a lot of teams don't feel like they have control over their life. And so that contributes to a black hole. If I can't fix this because I technically don't have the ability or access to fix something, it always goes to blocked. Rather or not that you could maybe have a conversation with someone about getting you the access to fix that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, then uh, the last psychological thing that I learned was about self-handicapping, which is basically if I don't think I can be um, successful at something, I won't even try. Uh, so again, that kind of goes back it's to a little self-fulfilling prophecy sort of exactly. thing. I keep telling myself over and over again, I can't. And then I teach myself I can't. So I never try. Exactly. Um, and that's basically, I'm trying to uh, control people's perception of me. Right. And so I, I've often in here, I've said, if you've ever had someone in a team that says you should give that task to someone else because they're the expert or they're better at it, they are self-handicapping. And maybe it's time for some peer programming or something like that. Yeah. Um, the last piece is not really a, um, a psychological concept, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, I have a whole slide on somebody else's problem and bystander effect. They're kind of very similar concepts. Um, somebody else's problem is actually from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's where the, the phrase was first coined. Um, but it's basically that, you know, somebody else will take care of it. It's not my yeah. problem. I don't have to do it. Um, and that's kind of related to the bystander effect, which is a process that our brains go through to kind of say, am I going to be a bystander to this thing that's happening or am I going to uh, help solve it? And so they're very similar. They kind of go hand in hand, um, not super psychological like the other three are, mm-hmm. but I thought it was very interesting because I was like, I've seen this, yeah, you know, when I've worked with teams of, um, this is not my domain. Somebody else's problem has somebody else has to go fix that. I'm blocked. <laughs> um, so those are when the psychological it, concepts. Yeah. And I, there's, there is a thread in that idea of locus of control that goes through all of it, that um, it really is about the idea of having your own agency, yeah. right? Am I having control over the actions that I take as an individual on this team? Do we as a team have our own self agency of the things that we're doing versus are we just sort of victims to the system that we're a part of? Right. Right. And I'm, I'm actually on my current team that I'm working on. Um, I'm really having to focus on that agency. Like you guys can control a lot of, of your work life. So let's, let's start. Yes, absolutely. So it, and then the motivation learned. that is unlocked when people and teams are able to tap into that really becomes so magical. Yes. It's amazing to see it happen. 
Yeah. And then I realized, you know, Sarah, I got so giddy about like wanting to to learn more about this idea of black holes and the revelations that come from it. I completely sped by um, I think one of the interesting things that I like to hear from our guests, and actually as part of the second topic that I want to dig in with you today, which is um, the fact that you were a first-time speaker and first-time attendee at Agile 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, but how did you find Agile in the first place? So I was kind of a, a forced Agile convert a, a little bit in that our company um, kind of sort of did a transformation in 2009. And I was one of the first pilot teams, sort of. We were sort of in the pilot, but sort of not. We had discovered Agile um, on our own. And I guess we were starting down that path. And I went very reluctantly, to be honest, because I was like, this is just feels like micromanaging to me. And I, I really wasn't bought in at first. So I always tell people, I'm a true Agile convert because I didn't really like it at first and I didn't really want to do it. Um, yeah. But once... Once I saw the values that, that came out of it. Um, so our whole company did kind of like the transformation. We all went through formal education um, over like six or nine months. They rolled everybody through. And we just started as a team. I had a, a team. We were scrum. We were scrum by the book. And so that is what we did for years. So we kind of, I'd like to tell people, we've had every agile fight you can probably have on that team. Uh, trying to, you know, figure out what would work for us. And then um, I really got into project management as well. And so kind of they went hand in hand at my old company of if you're a project manager, you're also acting as a scrum master for for a team. Which is a common pattern organizations go through. Yeah. Yeah. So I really just, you know, kind of started doing learning by myself and, um, you know, webinars and books and talking with others and eventually got into the coaching group at that company. And um, before I left that company a few months back, I was leading the the agile coaching on the development side. So uh, I really believe in it. Um, You know, I I bring some of it at home, you know, my kids don't have Kanban boards yet, but I have chore charts that I'm ready to convert into (laughs) Kanban boards for them. Um, So I, I really, it took a while for me to embrace it. And then I, I definitely recognized that moving what I would call the different levels of kind of the agile enlightenment, you know, um, I've definitely been stuck in certain areas until someone had a light bulb moment for me. And then I'm, oh, I can move to the next one. Great. Because uh, it made sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then that's so true for so many of us. It's like you, it's, it's almost, and I, I like that you call it a light bulb moment. It's Cause like, you don't even realize that there is more that's possible. And then all of a yeah. sudden that light bulb turns on, you're like, Oh, all these things could be done too. And isn't that so cool? Yes. Yeah. And I had I, a huge light bulb moment with metrics and it, it was amazing. <laughs> that sounds like a whole nother podcast conversation. Probably is. <laughs> And so, and, and I'll, I'll continue with this light bulb metaphor, because I think one of the things that many um, people experience um, when they go to their, their, start going to Agile conferences and things like that, and, and they know they're really passionate about Agile and they, they have good conversations with others, but it's like, you see that person up there on stage and you're like, that looks fun. Like, I want to do that too. But that journey from being the person sitting in the audience to having the courage to get up and be a speaker at a mm-hmm. conference is, um, can be intimidating. 
Sure. And, and a lot of times the hardest part is putting together the talk. Oh, so yeah. I'm kind of, I was thought we might be able to spend just a, a couple minutes talking about this, this talk that we've explored today during our chat. Like, how did that even come to be? And what can you, what have you learned from that that might be wisdom that other people can borrow from if they're wanting to go on a similar journey? Yeah. So um, I think I touched on this a little earlier and that it kind of came about as I was having, as I was instructing other employees at the company on agile fundamentals. And so they were asking questions and I kept referring to this one status at the company was blocked as a black hole. And I, and I was like, that's really interesting. And I started just to kind of mind map that thought and, and looking at, well, what is a black hole? And then what am I seeing? And then kind of riffing on that, how are we letting that happen? And so I found that in, in this case and in other presentations I've done, it's when the presentation is developed organically, like I say, like I didn't force this. It was something I started saying and then I you know, thought about it and, and stewed on it. Um, those presentations for, the, for me are the most fun to do because I go and learn and I'm passionate about it. I don't have to think uh, about the, the concepts or you know, write a script that I'm trying to remember. Uh, it just comes naturally. And so I find that that, that creating a presentation like that is fun and, and it's easier to do, you know, than to do something that's forced. But then getting out there and, and finding people to listen to you talk about it and get feedback. Um, I, you know, I think I started out small with just a few people and I would run through like some slides I presented and what do you think? Uh, and they would give me feedback. And then it started on like just local meetups and our local conferences. You know, I just start submitting and I really love the conferences that provide feedback. Uh, so like I think paper call and sessionize um, can provide feedback, which is really, really valuable uh, to know that, you know, this part of your abstract seems confusing. Oh, okay, good. I can go clarify that for you. Um, so, and then starting off small, you know, speaking to 20 people versus 200, right? It's, it, you can wet your feet a little bit with the 20 person. Um, and those are probably people, you know, to be honest, right? Those are people in your community and your networks that you feel comfortable with. And then you get to the, to the larger groups, uh, where really, you know, you're having a great time up there talking and it's the, the people seem to melt away from me, uh, when I do that. Yeah. And I think that that idea of feedback, not only on your abstracts also really extends to like the gift of feedback after you do the session, Yes. Um, and making sure to get that. And I think is as much as we as agilists are committed to the idea of needing feedback in order to iterate on the products we're developing, um, we probably are not as good at providing the feedback in all aspects of our community as we should. Cause I know I've been to a million sessions and oh, yeah. not taken the time to write the notes or even if it's just the green, yellow and red cards that you need to drop in at the door, yes. you know, I don't do that as well as I could either. So I think this is a plea to all of us <laughs> as agilists so. that may attend conferences, like give that gift of feedback, positive right. or negative yeah. to the person that, that's doing the presentation because that's the only way we get better. And you never know when that person may have been a first time speaker. Right. Right. And one thing that, that about feedback that's very interesting that I've encountered recently, and then I'm uh, someone that I kind of mentor also has encountered it recently is that there's always going to be negative feedback. Yep. And, and you really have to look at it. You have to take that step back, step out of yourself 
and say, what, what was this person really trying to convey? And, and so negative, don't take negative feedback personally. I mean, really, that's the only way I can say it is that one piece of negative feedback out of, you know, 20 positive ones, that's pretty good. Um, you know, and, and we should be okay with that because there's always going to be someone that your session wasn't for them, or they came in with a preconceived idea of what something was going to be. And turns out that's not what they wanted. So that's fine. Yeah. That's, and that's, I think that the other realistic ratio there is that, um, as we know, if we go read reviews of products or restaurants or services, the people that tend to leave feedback are the ones that are really fired up and angry about something. Like right. on on the continuum of angry and displeased to absolutely thrilled, you've got to often get really far on the thrilled end of it to write positive feedback. But if you're right. just like, oh, this little thing really got my goat on that one, like it's easy to just provide the negative feedback. Yes. So you also have to hold that lightly because mm -hmm. the neutral folks aren't necessarily going to write anything down. And so there's exactly. probably a lot more positive than you're seeing there. Yes. Yes. I, I always look at uh, if someone comes up and talks to me afterward, I kind of um, add that into the positive bucket times like two or three, because I was yes. like, maybe that person may not have left feedback, but they came and talked to me and said, I loved it. Or you said something and it sparked an idea. I was like, that is like, that's amazing to me. I love that feedback. It's very um, empowering and uh, just amazing as a speaker to, to get that. Yeah. So being that this was your first time at the big agile show and you've done, like, is, I think you alluded to like starting and doing talks on small stages and more regional sort of things before you went to, to the big show. Mm -hmm. What have you observed about the role of women, not only in our community, but how did it play out for you at this year's conference? So I've, I've always felt, and this, this is very interesting, I've always felt that there was a, a real even ratio of men and women, but I'm kind of I'm newer to Agile, like 2009, right? So 10 years in, um, I've felt that I've had um, the women mentors to, to look up to for a while, uh, certainly out in my, in my outer networks. In my company, it was, it was a little more you know, men heavy. Right. Um, and it was just, they, they went out and said, this is fun. Let's go do it. Um, but we've continued to try and build up and, and say, no, we need to bring women along because, um, they have different perspectives about things. You know, they have a different way to approach problems. And it's very interesting to see the differences when you get a, a group of people in a room and start to, to see how people approach problems differently. Um, so I've, I've always, some of my early mentors were men and I am actively trying to make the, the women connections now because I still, I always have those men in my life and, and they're great coaches and mentors, but I want to try and find women mentors out there that uh, we can connect on additional deeper levels. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's so important. And there are so many, I think back to uh, a women in agile breakfast that I went to recently we had 200 some odd people there. And it's like, and raise your hand if you're willing to mentor someone, there mm -hmm. are so many willing women. In fact, if I had a dream for the future of, of what we do with women in agile, it would be some sort of online reciprocity board around yes. seeking and providing mentorship. Cause right. The hard part is just 
buddying people up together. Right. Um, and sometimes it's on a very distinct topic, right? And you have somebody that's a mentor just on this one thing. And then sometimes there's those lifelong mentors that you that you revisit and, and work with over the years. Yes, exactly. So on that idea of learning, um, I always love to close these conversations with this idea of um, inspiring others around professional development and professional growth. So Sarah, what what is on your uh, list of things that you're doing or wanting to do to sort of continue to advance your skills? So I, I do love to talk to people. I, I can get in front of, in front of a whole bunch of people and talk about anything. And, and I love to do it. I love to help other people do it as well. Um, I do, I have been to conferences and even our local Kansas city conference last year, had a low participation of, of women speakers. And I ended up talking to the organizer who I consider one of my um, mentors and coaches. And, you know, she was very honest. She said, we have trouble attracting women to, to just submit even. So one of my passions is to get women to submit. It doesn't have to be perfect. Um, a lot of times, I, although it's easier to have a presentation that's ready uh, and when you submit, you don't have to. You can have an idea and throw it out there and then and then riff on it and get some feedback um, because you can always go to one of those organizers and say, this is really like a lightning talk. I can't really get it into a, you know, a, a slotted 40 or 45 minute kind of session. Um, so I really want to help people get out there and, and just submit. And if you're, you know, if people are scared about speaking, I can I can understand how that can be very scary. I want to help them do better because I want to see more women speaking at conferences and giving their uh, experiences and feedback to others. Yeah. And what are you doing for you? For me, um, I am continuing to learn. So I've, like I said, I've recently transitioned to a new company and I'm kind of having to start um, kind of down at ground zero in a sense with, with my teams um, who've had you know, no formal training and, and so I'm, re, I'm almost relearning how to do Agile and be Agile. Um, and I'm looking at all of the lessons I have learned and saying, if I could do it again, which I have the opportunity to do it again, what would I do different? And so I'm trying to look at what that. What a gift. Yeah, I know. I, I actually think I have a really interesting opportunity in front of me to say, these are the things that I have done wrong in my past. And I want to try and fix them. So my, my short-term focus is there. Um, long-term, I really, really love the psychology of Agile. Um, like I, I love metrics. They're hard numbers. You know, you can't really argue with them. But I also really love the brain space of why do we do what we do? Why does Agile work in some cases and not in others? So I am continuing to do my own research and, and kind of simmer on ideas um, and then one thing doing locally is we're starting a Kansas City Women in Agile group, which didn't exist. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. So I didn't really know, I didn't really comprehend that we didn't have a local group until I went to Agile 2019 and did the Women in Agile, you know, half day before the conference and had someone from Kansas City that I saw there and we got together and was like, why don't we have a group? We should start a group. So we did. Excellent. So Excellent. Yeah. 
That's awesome. And that, they, right, that's a plug we can use for other listeners, right? If there's not a local group in your area, you know, Women in Agile um, as an organization has got the programs in place to help you figure out how to get those started and the patterns and all of those things. Yes, it's excellent. We're, we're real excited. It took us a little bit to get started, but we've got our initial meeting on calendar finally. So we feel really excited about it. Excellent. Well, Sarah, as we go to wrap up, um, any final wisdom you want to share with listeners today? Uh, I, I really, really like the idea of experimenting. And I think that that goes along with nicely with the speaking, you know, getting out there. If you want, if you feel really passionate about a topic, experiment with it, speak to small meetup groups, uh, get some feedback and then, and then go from there, you know, to whatever level you're comfortable with. Excellent. I think that's a fantastic challenge for people to lean into. Yeah, I really do. Well, thank you so much for being with me today and having this chat. I appreciate it. Yes, thanks for having me. Yeah, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Women in Agile podcast series. It's brought to you in partnership with the Women in Agile nonprofit organization and Accenture Solutions IQ. We hope you've learned something new and invite you to go tell a friend or a coworker about the podcast. You can also go online to womeninagile.org to learn more about our initiatives and find additional inspiring podcast conversations. Thanks for listening to this Women in Agile podcast episode. Find more inspiring conversations by visiting womeninagile.org slash podcast, checking out the podcast series on iTunes, or visiting your podcast application of choice. If you have an idea for a topic, speaker, or feedback on an episode, please reach out to us via email through podcast at womeninagile.org.